Welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Welcome to our fourth part of our mini-series on Orion Pictures. Part one covered the founding of the company and its first four years of existence, 1979 to 1982. Part two covered the films of 1983 and 1984. Part three, 1985 and 1986. This time, we'll touch on their films from 1987 and 1988. So grab a Johnny Walker Blue, Neat, or other good scotch, sit back, relax, and let's get on with the show. We ended the last show on Orion's fantastic run with Oliver Stone's Platoon, which won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director, and was on its way to setting a new company record for highest-grossing film. Orion's first film of 1987 would be Woody Allen's Radio Days, which opened on January 30th. The $16 million film would be as close to an autobiographical movie as Allen would ever make, with his leading actor then 11-year-old Seth Green, bearing more than a passing resemblance to the writer-director. Alan himself would narrate the movie, which tells a series of vignettes about growing up in the late 30s and early 40s via the magic of the wireless, although most of these stories, such as listening to Orson Welles' Halloween 1939 Mercury Theater broadcast of The War of the Worlds, would have happened before Alan was even four years old. The movie would also feature... The first time Alan's former girlfriend and co-star Diane Keaton appeared in one of his movies since Manhattan eight years earlier, and the fifth and final appearance of Tony Roberts in a Woody Allen movie. The three, Alan, Keaton, and Roberts, had all met 18 years earlier when Alan was casting the Broadway version of his play, Played Again Sam, and they would play the same roles in Herbert Ross's movie version of the play a few years later. The movie would also feature a number of actors who had previously appeared in Woody Allen films, or this would be the first of several Woody Allen movies they'd appear in, including Danny Aiello, Larry David, Mia Farrow, Julie Kavner, and Diane Wiest. The reviews for Radio Days were very good, and the early returns would be, as they almost always are for the first weeks of a Woody Allen movie opening and limited release in major cities, exceptional. In 128 theaters... Radio Days would gross a cool million and a half. Its per-screen average of 11,893 was the second highest in the nation, only behind another Orion release, Platoon. But like most Woody Allen movies, once they go a bit wider, they lose steam real quick. The movie would be at its widest point of release in week five, when it earned 1.3 million from 488 theaters. And although the film would play in theaters for several months, it would only gross about $14.8 million. Daniel Vinge's A Woman or Two would be Orion Classic's first release of the year, opening at the Paris Theater in New York City on February 6th. A French-language comedy featuring Gérard Depardieu, Sigourney Weaver, and, of all people, Dr. Ruth. Depardieu, reteaming with his Return of Martin Gare director, stars as an archaeologist who discovers a two-million-year-old female fossil, whom he dubs the first French woman and names her Laura, and Weaver, an American advertising executive who wants to use Laura to help sell a perfume called French Lady. 
Janet Maslin's review in the New York Times was not kind, and Roger Ebert not only called the movie a waste of electricity for the projectors having to play it, but would put it amongst his most hated films. Susan Seidelman's sci-fi romantic comedy, Making Mr. Right, opened in theaters on April 3rd. John Malkovich plays a dual role here, of an emotionally repressed scientist who hates people and dreams of the isolation of deep space exploration, and his doppelganger android, whom the scientist develops for the purpose of deep space exploration, since the android would not be affected by the emotional toll of isolation. Anne Magnuson, Glenn Headley, and Laurie Metcalf round out the cast of ladies who get involved with the scientist and his creation. Seidelman is trying hard to say something about men and women and relationships and emotions, but it's too much of a mess, and the twist ending should be of no surprise to anyone. It's not as fun as Smithereens or Desperately Seeking Susan, and would be the first of three unfortunate strikes for Seidelman. The $9 million movie would open in 296 theaters and gross a lousy $445,000, and would be gone from theaters, for the most part, in about five weeks and $1.58 million earned. If you remember way back on our first Orion episode, one of the first production deals the new company made back in 1978 was a two-picture deal with Burt Reynolds. The first movie of that deal, Sharky's Machine, would be released in 1981, but it would take another six years before the second movie in that deal would finally get made and released. But unlike Sharky, Burt Reynolds did not direct Malone. Harvey Koklis, who had served as the second unit director on The Empire Strikes Back before directing Battle Truck and Bad Moon Rising, switches gear to direct this action thriller about a former CIA assassin who stumbles across a group of white nationalists when his car breaks down in a small Oregon town. When Sharky's Machine came out in 1981, Burt Reynolds was still a major star. But in 1987, the luster had faded on his career. His last several movies had been losers, and he was in the midst of a lawsuit filed by the director of his previous film for a physical altercation on set. Malone did have a decent supporting cast for Reynolds, including Scott Wilson, Kenneth McMillan, Lauren Hutton, Tracy Walter, and Cliff Robertson as the leader of the White Nationalists, but the $10 million movie would not be the Reynolds' hoped-for comeback vehicle. Malone would open on May 1st in 1,326 theaters and gross an anemic $1.38 million. Orion would stop tracking the film after three weeks and $3.06 million, which barely covered Reynolds' $3 million payday for the film. Marco Bellocchio's Devil in the Flesh would open in New York City on May 22nd. Based on a once scandalous novel about an affair between a young man and an older woman, the film was only notable during its release for its copious amount of sex, including one scene for which the movie earned its X rating for, in which Marushka Detmers performs unsimulated fellatio on Federico Pizzalis while the younger man tells his lover of Lenin's return to St. Petersburg in 1917. The scene is neither pornographic nor sexy, and truly not really necessary to the story. Nor would the controversy surrounding the movie motivate discerning moviegoers to the cinema. The film would only play in a handful of theaters for a handful of weeks, and only gross about $547,000 when all was said and done. John Schlesinger's 
The Believers, opened on June 10th. The Devil Worship-themed drama starred Martin Sheen as Cal Jamison, a psychologist who moves with his young son from Minneapolis to New York City after an accident claims the life of his wife. Taking a job with the New York Police Department, Cal is assigned the task of examining a man who claims the murder of a young boy in an, an abandoned movie theater is the work of a Hispanic cult practicing a form of devil worship called Brujeria. The movie would be the second in a series of occult-themed movies that would open between March 1987 and March 1988, including Alan Parker's Angel Heart and Wes Craven's The Serpent and the Rainbow. So even though The Believers had a stellar supporting cast, including Robert Loggia, Jimmy Smits, Harris Eulin, Richard Masur, and Helen Shaver, audiences just didn't care enough about Santeria just yet. Opening in 1,534 screens, The Believers would gross $4.3 million its opening weekend. Like many a movie in this era, the studio would stop tracking it after only a few weeks and $18.75 million in the bank, but it would continue to play as the B-title at drive-ins and dollar houses for most of the summer. Orion Classics would release Claude Berry's Jean de Florette in Los Angeles and New York City on June 26. Along with its companion film, Manon of the Spring, which would be released in November, the $17 million production would be the most expensive French movies ever made to that point. The film stars three of France's biggest actors of the day, Daniel Attil, Gérard Depardieu, and Yves Montand, the equivalent of getting Adam Driver, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Al Pacino together to do a drama about a greedy landowner and his backward nephew conspiring to block the only water source for an adjoining property in order to bankrupt the owner and force him to sell. The films came about in part thanks to French President François Mitterrand, who, upon his election in 1981, took special interest in the then-ailing French film industry, increasing governmental funding of the arts that celebrated the history, culture, and landscape of the country. The film would be nominated for eight César Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director, but would only win Best Actor for Autier. While there are no specific weekly numbers available for the movie, the film would still be playing strong when its second part would open in theaters five months later, and would continue to play into early 1988, grossing more than $5 million in the United States and $87 million around the world. We'll get to Manon in the spring in a little bit. The next Orion Classics release would be Alan Clark's Rita, Sue, and Bob 2, which arrived from the UK on July 17th. The movie is, as the Brits might say, a strange bird, a sometimes funny, sometimes somber story about two schoolgirls who get involved with the married man for whom they babysit. The reviews were pretty good, with Roger Ebert noting that he actually went to a second screening of the film in Chicago to observe how others handled the mixed tone of the film. Siobhan Finnernan, best known for playing Lady Grantham's personal maid in the first few seasons of Downton Abbey, and Leslie Sharp, who played Mark Addy's wife in The Full Monty, are the best-known cast members from the movie. The film would not do very well in the States, grossing but $124,000 after five months. We've now come to the point of this podcast where I get to talk about my second favorite movie from this period. (laughs) 
We get the best of both worlds, the fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer onboard computer-assisted memory and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you RoboCop. This guy is really good. He's not a guy, he's a machine. Old Detroit has a cancer. Cancer is crime. Let the woman go, you are under arrest. You, you better back up, pal! Your move, creep. What are your prime directives? You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. What is this shit? Anything you say may be used against you. He's a cyborg, you idiot. You recorded every word you said. You're dead. We killed you. His memory's admissible as evidence. You're gonna have to kill it. Get in a cop, for God's sake! <laughs> Robocop, the future of law enforcement. July 17th, Paul Verhoeven's Robocop. I still remember when I first watched the trailer. Way back when, before the internet, if you wanted to see a movie trailer, you had to go to a movie theater, buy a ticket to a movie, and watch whatever they programmed in front of your film. Sometimes the trailer is attached to the front of a movie, and sometimes the trailer would be shipped loose, chasing a specific title. Which means, if you were to see Lethal Weapon in a theater in March of 1987, the trailer attached to the front of Lethal Weapon would be another Warner Brothers movie coming out in late, later in the year, like Inner Space <clears throat> or Full Metal Jacket or The Lost Boys. I actually don't remember which trailer was attached to Lethal Weapon, but I do remember we had a trailer for a movie called Robocop, sitting around the projection booth of the Del Mar Theater in Santa Cruz, where I was a fresh-faced, thin, not-yet-overweight 19-year-old assistant manager who was in charge of building up and watching the prints of the new movies on Thursday nights. Lethal Weapon was a cop movie, and RoboCop was probably a cop movie. After all, it had the word cop in the title, so why not put RoboCop in front of Lethal Weapon? Again, in the days before the internet, we didn't always know every little thing about an upcoming movie years before it's even made. I may have read something about it in Cinefantastique or some other genre movie magazine, but when that first teaser trailer rolled across the screen, I was transfixed. I wanted to watch it again, but I'd have to wait for the rest of the trailers and then the movie to finish because you couldn't just rewind a movie back then. So at 2.30 in the morning after finishing Lethal Weapon, I found another copy of the RoboCop trailer in my projection booth and ran it by itself. And then I ran it again. And again. And again. I don't know how many times I watched it that night. It might have been 10, it might have been 15, but I was blown away. And borrowing the score from the Terminator was freaking genius. But now I'd have to wait four and a half months to see it? Fuck. But wait, I did, and it helped that there were a lot of good movies that came out during the spring and early summer of 1987. RoboCop would open at the 41st Avenue Playhouse in neighboring Capitola, but thankfully, thankfully I would have started to pick up shifts at the 41st 
in addition to the Del Mar, so I was able to watch RoboCop the night before it opened, and it was everything I had hoped it would be. I didn't know who Paul Verhoeven was just yet. Spetters and Soldier of Orange and Turkish Delight would be years away for me as a viewer. I was just responding so viscerally to the imagery and the story and the gallus black humor lying just underneath the surface. It openly made a mockery of its genre, directly disdainful of the stupid tropes that would fill the landscape of a sci-fi action movie such as this. It mocked American capitalism, American consumerism, American greed, American machismo, and the American media influence, among many things. Perhaps the only other director who could have made this movie in any kind of similar way was Repo Man director Alex Cox, who was offered the chance to direct the film before Verhoeven came aboard. Verhoeven wanted his friend and frequent collaborator Rutger Hauer to star as Murphy, but Peter Weller was chosen instead, in large part because he moved better in the Robocop costume. And Stephanie Zimblis was signed for the role of Lewis before having to drop the movie when her television show Remington Steel was uncancelled by NBC, a move that would also keep Pierce Brosnan from becoming James Bond for another eight years. When the $13 million movie opened in 1,580 theaters, it would be the number one movie in America with just over $8 million in ticket sales. It would also be the number one movie in its second week of release with $6.3 million, beating out newcomers La Bamba, Summer School, and Superman for The Quest for Peace. It would fall to fourth place in its third week, thanks to the opening of Timothy Dalton's first Bond movie, The Living Daylights, and The Lost Boys. But RoboCop would continue to play throughout the summer and fall of 1987. Orion would stop tracking it just after Christmas, with $53.4 million in ticket sales. But by then, Frank Miller would already be at work on writing what would become RoboCop 2. Roger Donaldson's No Way Out opened on August 14th. It was originally supposed to open earlier in the year, but Orion wisely decided to hold off on releasing the film until after their lead star's other movie that summer had opened. This is because, while Kevin Costner had already played the lead in two 1985 movies, American Flyers and Fandango, and had a featured role in Lawrence Kasdan's all-star western Silverado, the actor hadn't yet broken out into the mainstream. No Way Out finished shooting in July 1986, and Costner went right into playing Elliot Ness in Brian De Palma's The Untouchables a few weeks later. The word in Hollywood in early 1987 was that The Untouchables was looking to become a blockbuster, and so Orion pushed their sexy political thriller back from two months before to two months behind the De Palma movie. And The Untouchables was a hit. It would never be the number one film in the nation in any given week it was playing, but it would gross $18 million in its first seven days, and nearly $70 million when it was time for No Way Out to be released. This $15 million movie was a modern remake of the 1940s noir novel and movie The Big Clock, and would help solidify Costner as a major talent in Hollywood. Backed by a supporting cast that included Gene Hackman, Sean Young, Will Patton, Howard Duff, and Fred Dalton Thompson, No Way Out would actually open in fourth place in its first weekend, with $4.3 million from 806 theaters, behind Stakeout, The Living Daylights, and Can't Buy Me Love, it would fall to fifth place in its second week of release, 
But in its third week, it would jump to number two, and, would, and it would continue to play well into October. When tracking would end for the film after the first weekend in November, the film had collected $35.5 million in ticket sales and would set Costner on the path to being Orion's golden boy for the next few years. There was another movie Orion opened on August 14th, Franklin J. Schaffner's Lionheart. Well, it opened in at least one theater, the Cineplex Odeon Canada Square in Toronto. Talia Shire produced the film through her Talia Film Production Company alongside her brother, Francis Ford Coppola. Coppola was originally supposed to direct, but they instead hired Schaffner, who had directed Coppola's screenplay for the 1970 Best Picture winner, Patton. Eric Stoltz stars as an exiled young knight who leads a band of orphans to join the Third Crusade alongside King Richard the Lionheart. Gabriel Byrne co-stars as the Black Prince, a disillusioned crusader turned child slave trader. Although there would be no film grosses available for its playdate at the Canada Square, the film would not open in any other theaters and would not be released on home video for another three years. J. Russell's End of the Line would be one of the few American movies Orion Classics would release into theaters. Wilford Brimley and the band drummer Levon Helm play two Arkansas railroad workers who quote-unquote borrow a train and drive it from Little Rock to Chicago to plead their case when they discover the company is about to close their rail yard and lay off all the employees. Ironically, the movie was produced with the support of the Missouri Pacific and Union Pacific Railroad companies who provided technical assistance and trains for the production to use. The film also stars Kevin Bacon, Holly Hunter, who between Raising Arizona and Broadcast News was already having a pretty damn good year, Bob Balaban, Barbara Berry, and Mary Steenburgen, who was also one of the producers of the film, and whose father was a freight train conductor for the Missouri Pacific Railroad. The film would open in 42 theaters in and around Little Rock on August 28th. The average per-screen gross was a disastrous $595 for the entire weekend, and Orion would stop tracking it after those first three days. Orion Classics would release Jovan Akin's Dancing in Water, titled Hey Babu Riba for America, at their favorite theater in New York City, the Embassy 72nd Street, on September 18th. Four middle-aged Yugoslav emigres, former rowing teammates, returned to Belgrade for the funeral of their team's coxswain from 30 years earlier, a beautiful young woman they all loved and hadn't seen since they helped her escape Yugoslavia after her royalist officer father flees for Italy. The film would get some good reviews, but would not travel outside major American cities like Los Angeles, Chicago, Boston, or Washington, D.C. The film would play for a couple months and gross a total of $141,000. September 18th would see the release of Cinzia Torini's Hotel Colonial. The $6 million adventure film would be the Italian director's first English-language movie, an offbeat adventure drama that features John Savage as an Italian-American businessman who heads to Colombia after he receives word his brother, a former terrorist who gave up his fellow brothers-in-arms for a reduced sentence, had committed suicide. The movie also features Robert Duvall as Savage's brother, 
Rachel Ward as an Italian embassy staffer, and Massio Troisi as a Brazilian boat owner named Werner. It's a jumbled mess of a film, one that would only gross $9,526 from one theater in New York City, the 23rd Street West Triplex, and one theater in Los Angeles, the Cineplex Beverly Center. The movie would only play for one week at each theater. The following Friday, September 25th, came a bigger release for Orion, John Flynn's bestseller. It would be Brian Dennehy's fifth movie with Orion in eight years, this time starring as a veteran police officer turned best-selling author, and James Woods as an assassin for a major corporation. The screenplay was written by Larry Cohen and would also feature another very good Paul Shinar villain role, his penultimate movie before his passing two years later. Cohen himself was quite pleased with the final movie, at least up until the ending, which director Flynn had rewritten. Audiences would be less thrilled by, by the movie. In 253 theaters opening weekend, the film would gross about $905,000, but it would quickly move to the bottom film of a drive-in double feature, where it would play out for 14 weeks in a final gross of $4.3 million. By 1987, David Mamet had already written 20 plays, including winning a Pulitzer Prize for Glen Gary Glen Ross, and had written the screenplays for the 1981 adaptation of The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Verdict, and The Untouchables, all before he had turned 40. With all that success on Broadway and in Hollywood, it would be inevitable before too long that his attention would turn to the director's chair. On October 11th, Orion would release the first movie to be directed by the legendary author, four weeks after Cannon would release a movie directed by another famous writer, Norman Mailer's Tough Guys Don't Dance. House of Cards is a great movie. It stars longtime Mammoth collaborators Joe Mantegna, Lindsey Krauss, who was married to Mammoth at the time, William H. Macy, and the late great Ricky Jay. Krauss plays an acclaimed psychiatrist and author who finds a sense of satisfaction in her otherwise dull life by becoming involved with a con man. That's really all I want to tell you about the movie if you haven't seen it, because like many of Mamet's plays and movies, it's best to go in with as little knowledge as possible. The devil is in the details, as they say, and the screenplay and direction are so richly detailed. It's a shame the film wasn't more successful. While the film did well in its early limited run, it would never play in, in more than a few dozen theaters at a time and would only gross about $2.59 million after 11 weeks. The Criterion Collection has a great release of the movie from several years ago with a commentary by Mamet and interviews with several of the actors from the film. Find it, rent it, or buy it and enjoy it again and again and again. Long before Dick Wolf became the mastermind of the law and order television universe, he was writing some pretty awful movies. One of them, No Man's Land, would arrive in theaters on October 23rd. D.B. Sweeney stars as a young police officer from San Diego who goes undercover in Los Angeles to obtain evidence that a millionaire playboy, played by Charlie Sheen, is behind a string of Porsche thieves up and down the Southern California coastline. It's what the Fast and Furious might have looked and felt like if it was shot during the MTV Miami Vice era, and it features a pretty decent supporting cast including Bill Duke, R.D. Call, M. Emmett Walsh, and Randy Quaid, 
and it also features the very first screen appearance by a then 23-year-old Brad Pitt as a waiter in a restaurant scene, a quick scene he was almost fired from because he tried to ad-lib a line in order to get his Screen Actors Guild card. Pitt would finally get a line in a movie and thus become eligible to join SAG a few months later when he was featured in one of the party scenes in Less Than Zero. He even gets to say his line while high-fiving that movie's lead, Andrew McCarthy. But it kind of tells you how bad this movie is if I'm riffing about some extra in one scene and I haven't even mentioned the director yet. His name was Peter Werner, a television director for whom this movie would be his third and final shot at feature directing. Opening in 510 theaters, No Man's Land would gross just over $1 million in its first three days, and would stop being tracked after four weeks and $2.88 million in ticket sales. As previously mentioned, Claude Berry's companion film to Jean de Florette, Manon of the Spring, would open in major cities on November 5th while the first film was still going strong. Manon would once again star Daniel Attil and Yves Montand as the same characters, with Emmanuel Bayer, who would years later star in the first Mission Impossible movie alongside Tom Cruise, taking the place of Gerard Depardieu as his character's daughter, a shepherdess who plots revenge against the two men who conspired to take her father's land years before. Individually, they are great movies. Watched together, as if it's a four-hour movie with an intermission, it is one of the best French movies ever made. Bayer would quickly be courted by Hollywood, appearing as the titular character in the Dino De Laurentiis release Date with an Angel less than a year later, which we'll cover in our De Laurentiis Entertainment Group episode somewhere down the road. Bayer would also start a decades-long relationship with her co-star Atil during the production of the film. In America, the movie would gross a bit under $4 million after five months, but more than $56 million worldwide. Danny DeVito would make his featured directing debut with Throw Mama from the Train, which Orion opened on December 11th. DeVito would star alongside Billy Crystal in this twisted comedic riff on Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train, with Anne Ramsey as the one of the most twisted moms to ever grace the screens. Ramsey is so good she would be nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. And just how important was the use of Strangers on a Train to the story? Orion would give up all sequel and remake rights to Arthur. And there'd be an Arthur 2 in theaters seven months after this movie came out. But Orion got the better part of the deal, as the $14 million movie would open to number one with $7.3 million from 1,477 screens, on its way to a final gross of $57.9 million dollars while Warner's Arthur sequel would only gross about $14.7 million, or about 15% of the original Arthur's $95 million total. Louis Malle's Au Revoir Les Enfants would open at the Music Hall Theater in Beverly Hills on December 16th for a one-week Oscar qualifying run, before opening in New York and Los Angeles for its regular theatrical run in early February 1988. The autobiographical film tells the story about a young boy going to a Roman Catholic boarding school outside Paris who witnesses a Gestapo raid. The film would be France's entry into the foreign language film Oscar race, where it would get nominated, alongside with Mal himself 
for Best Original Screenplay. The film would win seven of nine Cesar Awards it was nominated for, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. The film would do very well in America, Mall's highest-grossing non-American production, collecting more than $4.5 million in ticket sales. And in a strange twist of fate, Quentin Tarantino says he got the title for his first film when a patron at the video store he was working at misheard his suggestion of Au Revoir Les Enfants as Reservoir Dogs. On December 18th, Orion released their second Woody Allen movie of the year, entitled September. Based on Chekhov's Uncle Vanya, Allen wanted to make, well, a filmed play and got a great cast for the film, including Mia Farrow, Diane Wiest, Farrow's real-life mother Maureen O'Sullivan, Christopher Walken, Denham Elliott, and Charles Durning. But Allen and Walken would clash on set, and Walken would be replaced by Sam Shepard. But when Allen finished shooting and started editing the $8 million movie, he realized he was not happy with it, and he decided to rewrite and reshoot the entire movie. But some of the original actors were not available when it came to make the movie again. O'Sullivan would be replaced with Elaine Stritch. Shepard was replaced by Sam Waterston. Durning was working on another movie, so Alan put Denham Elliott in his role and then brought Jack Warden in to play Elliott's original role. Alan would cover the $2 million cost of the reshoots himself, but all that drama behind the scenes didn't help the film at the box office. Even in its first few weeks of limited release, Allen fans would stay away. After 10 days in 15 theaters during a usually very lucrative Christmas holiday season, the film would have only grossed about $200,000. And when Orion stopped tracking it two weeks later, the total would only be $486,000, which to this day is still the lowest grossing of all his films released into theaters. Now, there's one more movie that I want to bring up for 1987, although the movie never actually came out in theaters. Steve Desjarnat's Cherry 2000 was shot in late 1985 and was supposed to come out in August 1986, then March 1987, and then September 1987. Desjarnat was an American Film Institute student whose thesis film Tarzana helped get his proverbial foot in the door in Hollywood. He would direct Man from the South, the pilot episode for the 1985 revival of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents anthology show, which would feature a young and upcoming actress, Melanie Griffith, alongside her mother, Hitchcock muse Tippi Hedren, another Hitchcock muse, Kim Novak, as well as Griffith's then-husband, Stephen Bauer, and the legendary John Huston. And based on their working relationship on that set, Desjarnat would cast Griffith in the leading role in his first feature film, the $10 million dystopian sci-fi romantic action film Cherry 2000. The first produced screenplay written by Michael Almoreda, Cherry 2000 tells the story of Sam Treadwell, a business executive in a post-apocalyptic 2017 America who goes on a quest to find a replacement for his female android wife, a model Cherry 2000, when she short-circuits beyond repair during a particularly sudsy coital endeavor. Griffith plays a tracker who agrees to take Sam into Zone 7, a dangerous and lawless area where the factory for the now-defunct androids were made. Pamela Gidley stars as the titular android, and the film also features Tim Thomerson, 
Oscar winner Ben Johnson, Brian James, Harry Carey Jr., Marshall Bell, and Lawrence Fishburne. But when Orion got the final cut of the film, film, they had no idea what to do with it. Its blending of so many genre elements made it hard to categorize in the age of high concept, and various marketing materials couldn't figure out which elements to highlight. Some key art would feature several of the actors in the background of a highly stylized poster done up like Richard Ansel, while others would feature Griffith front and center, her ample cleavage partially exposed from a shirt opened all the way down to her navel, holding a bazooka. The film would play at some film festivals, but it wouldn't find an audience until Orion released it on video in November 1988. Since then, the film has become a cult classic, and its score by Robocop composer Basil Polidoris is highly coveted by film score enthusiasts. Is it a great movie? No. But it's a lot better than some of the shit Orion did put out in the theaters. And it's a lot of fun. If you ever have the chance to see it, do so. Along with Desjardins' other feature, the insanely good Miracle Mile. Orion would end 1987 as the fourth highest grossing distributor for the year, with more than $330 million in ticket sales. Far behind number one Paramount, who had the biggest film of the year in Beverly Hills Cop 2, as well as top five hits Fatal Attraction and The Untouchables, but ahead of far bigger companies like Columbia Pictures and Universal Studios. When the Academy Award nominations were, were announced for the movies of 1987, Orion would receive eight nods from five films. Robocop would be nominated for Best Film Editing and Best Sound, both which it would, they would lose to The Last Emperor, but it would go home with a special achievement award for best sound effects editing, which wasn't its own category yet. Both Radio Days and Au Revoir Les Enfants would be nominated for best original screenplay, losing to John Patrick Shanley and Moonstruck. Radio Days would also be nominated for best art direction, which would go to The Last Emperor. And Au Revoir Les Enfants would also be nominated for best foreign language film, but would lose to fellow Orion Classics film Bobette's Feast, which we haven't talked about yet, since it wouldn't open in the United States until March 1988, three weeks after the nominations were announced and a month before its win. Orion's first film for 1988 was Michael Ritchie's The Couch Trip. It's another movie that looked good on paper, teaming Dan Aykroyd, Walter Matthau, and Charles Grodin in a, in a comedy about mental patients psychiatrists, and radio talk show hosts. It's directed by Michael Ritchie, whose classic movies to this point were Downhill Racer, The Candidate, The Bad News Bears, and Fletch. And it also features one of Aykroyd's co-stars from Saturday Night Live, who also starred in one of those Michael Ritchie movies, to make a small cameo. It should have been a really good movie, but the $18 million film, where Aykroyd escapes a mental hospital and becomes a sensation guest hosting a radio talk show in Los Angeles thanks to a case of mistaken and stolen identity, misfires on all cylinders. The funniest thing in the movie is a small and rather obscure inside joke at the end of the film that references two of Aykroyd's far better and bigger movies, The Blues Brothers and Trading Places. The movie would open in 1,332 theaters and gross $3.3 million, behind two other new openers, the forgotten Molly Ringwald Ting pregnancy drama For Keeps and the resequel to The Return of the Living Dead, 
which was such a bad idea from the start that Orion didn't want anything to do with it, even though the first movie was a decent hit for them a couple years earlier. The Count's trip would quickly disappear from theaters after several weeks and $11 million in ticket sales. One of the first films Orion Pictures released back in 1979 was Philip Kaufman's The Wanderers. In the ensuing years, Kaufman would help write Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he would write and direct the ambitious 1983 screen adaptation of Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff. While that film did not become the box office success many thought it should have been, Kaufman's adaptation was solid and would give him the ability to make almost anything he wanted. And what he really wanted to do was make a movie out of Czechoslovakian author Milan Kundera's 1984 novel, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. An intimate story about a brain surgeon and his affairs with an artist and a waitress during the Prague Spring Uprising in early 1968, the $17 million movie was being produced by Saul Zantz, who had also made One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in Amadeus, and would star three of the hottest up-and-coming actors in the film world, Daniel Day-Lewis, Lena Olin, and Juliette Binoche. Unlike many adaptations, Kundera was welcomed onto the set and was an active consultant during production. Kundera would even write a poem specifically for the film, which Day-Lewis would whisper into Binoche's ear as she's falling asleep in one scene. When the film was released, the reviews were glowing and the initial box office was spectacular. Opening in 13 theaters on February 5th, the movie would gross more than $200,000. Its per-screen average of 15553 nearly tripling the next highest. The film would add another 65 screens in its fourth week and another 50 in its eighth week. But while the film would maintain a strong per-screen average week after week after week, it was clear the highly intellectual movie was not going to play well outside major urban markets. Without ever playing in more than 140 theaters in any given week, the unbearable lightness of being would gross $10 million over its seven-month run. Mark Rosenthal's The In Crowd would also open in select theaters on February 5th. You don't remember The In Crowd? That's okay. The film featuring Donathan Letch as a straight-A student who becomes a dancer on a popular local television dance show, only opened in 37 theaters in the general Philadelphia metro region. So, if you weren't living in southeast Pennsylvania or southwest New Jersey or northern Delaware, it would never play in any theater near you. The film would only gross $48,000 from those 37 theaters, and if the film couldn't do well in the area where it takes place, how was it going to do anywhere else? The film would play for three more weeks and would end its run with $137,000. When it was released on video several months later, it was released as, depending on which part of the country you were in, the in-crowd, bandstand, or dance party. It also featured some pretty great 60s music, including one of my favorite songs, which I never thought I'd get to play again on this podcast, but I'm playing again for the second time in five episodes.
O'Connor's A Month in the Country would open at the 68th Street Playhouse in New York City on February 19th. O'Connor's follow-up to his amazing 1984 debut, Cal, starred Colin Firth as a shell-shocked World War I veteran who arrives in a tiny Yorkshire town who is supposed to uncover a medieval painting on the wall of a local church. He stars alongside Natasha Richardson and Kenneth Branagh. But since Firth, Richardson, and Brana were not yet the stars they would become, this being Firth's third movie, Richardson's second, and Brana's first, audiences in the state would pretty much ignore the film, which would only gross $444,000 after three months. O'Connor would have another film in theaters a few weeks later, an American comedy called Stars and Bars starring Daniel Day-Lewis, but we'll go more in-depth for that film in our upcoming podcast about David Putnam's tenure at Columbia Pictures. Gabriel Axel's Babette's Feast would open at the Cinema Studio Theater in New York City on March 4th, already having been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. Based on a short story by Itzhak Dinesen, herself the subject of the 1985 Best Picture winner Out of Africa, Babette's Feast takes place during the late 19th century in a strict religious community in a Danish village, which takes in a French refugee from the Franco-Prussian War to work as a servant for the late pastor's daughters. The film would not only win the Oscar for foreign language film, it would become something of a minor phenomenon. The film would play in at least one theater in New York City for 147 consecutive weeks. That's nearly three years and fine restaurants in major cities around the country would host Babette's Feast meal events, featuring foods from the movie, including turtle soup, blini demidoff with Russian caviar, quail stuffed with foie gras, and baked in a puff pastry nest with truffles, a salad, cheeses, baba rum, fresh fruits, coffee, and wine. Newspapers would print recipes for the foods from the movie in their food sections, in the United States, the movie would finish that nearly three-year run with $4.4 million in ticket sales, most of it during 1987. Peter Yates's The House on Carroll Street also arrived in limited release on March 4th. Kelly McGillis, Je Jeff Daniels, Jessica Tandy, and Mandy Patinkin star in this thriller about an FBI agent and a blacklist victim in the 1950s who uncover a plot to smuggle Nazi war criminals into the United States. The $14 million film was a mess before it even started shooting. First it was called Sullivan Street, and took place in and around Greenwich Village, and then the title was changed to The House on Sullivan Street, and then the setting was changed to Brooklyn, and the movie retitled again to The House on Carroll Street, even though no additional filming was done to cover for the changes. And then... You know you're in real trouble when that disclaimer at the end of the movie that tells you all the people and situations in the movie are fictitious adds an additional section that states, and I quote, In particular, the producers do not intend to imply that Life magazine dismissed any of its employees for their political beliefs or activities. The producers appreciate that Life magazine recognizes the rights of its employees 
to peruse their own political choices. Opening in 33 eaters across New York, Los Angeles, and other major markets, the film grossed about $175,000. Orion would stop tracking the movie after its second weekend with less than $313,000 in ticket sales. Robert M. Young's Dominic and Eugene hit theaters on March 18th. Tom Hulse and Ray Liotta would play fraternal twins, one a Pittsburgh garbage man who has an intellectual disability due to a childhood accident, the other a medical student who has to weigh an offer to attend Stanford to continue his education with his devotion to his brother and a possible romance with Jamie Lee Curtis, who plays a nurse at the hospital Leota's character wants to work at. The film received some good reviews and would perform well in its first weekend of limited release, grossing $281,000 in 61 theaters. But the film would never expand to any kind of wide release and would barely top $3 million in ticket sales when Orion stopped tracking it after eight weeks. Bud Smith's Johnny B. Good would be released on March 25th and is only worth talking about as the first major Hollywood film to feature a then 17-year-old Uma Thurman. The movie is meant to be a comedy about the evils of college football recruiting, but it's not very funny, especially the scene where Anthony Michael Hall, as a star quarterback whom every college wants, and Robert Downey Jr. as his feckless friend, are jailed and blackmailed with rape charges against them, which would be conveniently dropped if Johnny would just agree to sign with one particular school. It's weird to see filmmakers try to move Hall from being the nerd to being the jock, and even weirder to see Downey as an ineffective sidekick. Paul Gleason does a good Paul Gleason impersonation, Howard Cosell and Jim McMahon show up at various points, and Robert Downey Sr. shows up at the end to help save the day. The film received horrid reviews upon its release, and to this day still holds a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. But as we've seen a thousand times before and since, bad reviews don't always stop bad movies from being seen. Opening in 1168 theaters, the film would come in second place with five and a quarter million dollars. Over the course of the spring, the movie would continue to do okay, and would last as long as 40 weeks as the B-title at Drive-In and Dollar Houses, working its way towards a fairly decent $17.5 million gross. April 15th would see the release of Colors, Dennis Hopper's first film as a director since 1980's Out of the Blue, and the first time he would direct a movie he did not also star in or write himself. Robert Duvall and Sean Penn play LAPD officers who find themselves in the middle of a gang war between the Crips, the Bloods, and a Hispanic street game called the 21st Street Gang. The movie would be shot in South Central and Echo Park and Westlake and East Los Angeles, all which were having gang issues at the time. Real gang members would be hired by the production to act as guardians and to play gang members in the movie. But even then, two of the gang members were shot during the production of the film. Penn would also get arrested during production for punching an extra who was taking pictures of the actor without permission, for which he'd later be sentenced to spend 33 days in jail for the assault. Yet, despite these problems, the $10 million film was completed on time and on budget. The reviews would be amongst the best of Hopper's directing career. 
Roger Ebert and Janet Maslin of the New York Times were amongst the critics who praised the film. And the film would open in second place its opening weekend with $4.8 million in ticket sales, despite only playing in 422 theaters. Two weeks later, the film would expand to 1,372 screens and would become the number one film in the country with more than $6.5 million. It would stay the number one film in its fourth week and stay in the top five for another month. After eight months, the film would end its run with $46.6 million in grosses, the second highest grossing film for the company that year. And its soundtrack, featuring Ice-T, salt and Pepper, Big Daddy Kane, and Eric B. and Rakim, would become one of the first hip-hop soundtrack albums to hit the Billboard Top 40 charts. I am a nightmare walking, psychopath talking. King of my jungle, just a gangster, stalking, living life like a firecracker, quick as my fuse. Been dead as a death, back the colors I choose. Red or blue, cuz of blood, it just don't matter. Sucker died for your life when my shotgun scatters. The gangs of LA will never die. Just multiply colors. Vim Vender's Heaven Over Berlin released as Wings of Desire in many other countries, opened at the Cinema Studio One in New York City on April 29th. In a still-divided Berlin, an angel, Damil, tires of overseeing human activity and wishes to become human when he falls in love with a mortal. The late, great Bruno Gahn stars as the angel, who has been in Berlin since before there was a city, or even humans. He follows people around, keeping his sacred oath to assemble, testify, and preserve reality. Amongst the people he discovers is Marion, an overwhelmingly dejected trapeze artist whose circus is shutting down, and Peter Falk, who is in West Berlin to shoot a movie about the city's Nazi past, and, sensing Damil's present, reveals himself to be a former angel who renounced his own mortality to become, as he says, a participant in the world. Damiel makes the leap to become human, where he experiences life for the first time. It's one of my favorites, a top 50 film of all time, and I'm ashamed to admit, even though it came out shortly before my 21st birthday, I didn't see it until well into my 30s. Outside of Until the End of the World and one other title, I wouldn't see most of his movies in theaters until I moved to New York City in the early 2000s. I've been playing catch-up for years, and it's been a pleasure to do so. Venders is among the true masters of modern cinema, and he was at his very best here. His use of black and white versus color to set up the real and ethereal is, forgive the pun, heavenly. The blend of music and score sets the perfect, mirthful, yet sullen mood for Demille's existential crisis. And it inadvertently became a snapshot of life in a city and country that would be much different not two years later. Vendors would revisit Berlin after the reunification with a direct sequel, Far Away So Close, in 1993. America would offer up a decent, if unspectacular, remake, City of Angels, in 1998, and Tony Kushner would borrow themes and elements from Wings of Desire for his own career-defining work, Angels in America. That first weekend at the cinema studio, Wings of Desire would gross $17,301.
Theater number one had about 250 seats, and an average ticket price for an art house theater in New York City in 1988, between matinees and evenings, general admissions and seniors and children, was around $5.25. $17,301 in ticket sales divided by an average ticket price of $5.25 would be about 3,295 people showing up to see it on opening weekend. Divide that by 15, the number of shows the movie would have had those three days, and you're looking at 220 people per show. That's just under 90% capacity for every single show. And without reserved seating, that means some people were willing to sit in the very front rows for the two-hour and seven-minute movie, plus any policy trailers and coming attractions that might have played. That's, That's pretty damn impressive. And the film would continue to amass strong ticket sales. But Orion Classics also knew to spend their money wisely and not try to force a German-language black-and-white movie about an angel and an existential crisis into markets that weren't just going to go for that kind of thing. Over the course of eight months, Wings of Desire would never expand to more than 29 play dates in any given weekend, yet it would gross more than $3.2 million dollars. Again, that is pretty damn impressive. A moment ago, I mentioned Colors was Orion's second highest grossing film of 1988. What was number one? Only one of my top five movies of all time. I believe in the Church of Baseball. I've tried all the major religions and most of the minor ones. I've worshipped Buddha, Allah, Brahma, Vishnu, Siva, trees, mushrooms and Isadora Duncan. I know things. For instance, there are 108 beads in a Catholic rosary and there are 108 stitches in a baseball. When I learned that, I gave Jesus a chance. But it just didn't work out between us. The Lord laid too much guilt on me. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball and it's never boring, (laughs) which makes it like sex. There's never been a ball player slept with me who didn't have the best year of his career. Making love is like hitting a baseball. You just got to relax and concentrate. Besides, I'd never sleep with a player hitting under 250, unless he had a lot of RBIs or was a great glove man up the middle. You see, there's a certain amount of life wisdom I give these boys. I can expand their minds. Sometimes when I've got a ball player alone, I'll just read Emily Dickinson or Walt Whitman to him. And the guys are so sweet, they always stay and listen. Of course, a guy will listen to anything if he thinks it's foreplay. I make them feel confident, and they make me feel safe and pretty. Of course, what I give them lasts a lifetime. What they give me lasts 142 games. Sometimes it seems like a bad trade. But bad trades are part of baseball. I mean, who can forget Frank Robinson for Milk Pappas, for God's sake? It's a long season, and you gotta trust it. I've tried them all I really have, and the only church that truly feeds the soul day in, day out, is the Church of Baseball. Ron Shelton's Bull Durham arrived in theaters on June 15th. Before becoming a screenwriter and eventually director, Shelton played second base, in the minor league baseball system for five years, making it as far as playing AAA baseball for the Rochester Red Wings, then an affiliate of the Baltimore Orioles. 
but Rich Dower would remain the Orioles' second baseman for a good decade, and Shelton would hang up his cleats and start writing The Player to Be Named Later, which would, after many rewrites, become the movie we all know and love today. The then 32-year-old Kevin Costner, whose $3 million salary would account for a full third of the $9 million total budget, would be cast as veteran player Crash Davis because of his baseball-playing past as much as his Gary Cooper-esque demeanor, and the then 29-year-old Tim Robbins because he looked much younger and how he would tower over the other stars. But the real star of the film was Susan Sarandon, whose career would be revitalized after nearly two decades of ups and downs. It also would be the start of a fruitful partnership between Sarandon and Robbins that would produce a 20-year love affair, two kids, and an Oscar for Miss Sarandon. The Durham Bulls became the team of choice in the movie in no small part because Tom Mount, the producer of the film, was the part owner of the baseball team and could help secure assistance from both minor league and major league baseball in getting the film made. The film is just a joy to watch. I had the opportunity to attend a 15th anniversary screening of the movie at the BAM Cinematheque in Brooklyn back in 2003 when Shelton, Sarandon, and Robbins attended and the sold-out auditorium was having a great time with the movie, quoting back lines to the screen and cheering along with the action. When it opened in 1,238 theaters, it would gross $5 million, which was only good for sixth place in a rather crowded marketplace. But the next weekend, despite falling to seventh place, it would actually end up grossing a little more, $5.1 million. And then the following weekend, the 4th of July holiday weekend, it would jump to fourth place with another $5.3 million in tickets sold. And it would just keep holding steady week after week, losing some screens here and there, but never losing more than 20% of the previous week's audience. The film would play in theaters all through the summer and fall, hitting more than $50.88 million in ticket sales when Orion stopped tracking it just before Christmas. Richard Ayer's 1983 romantic comedy Loose Connections would open at the Public Theater in New York City on July 8th. Let's make that clear for a second. Orion Classics would release a five-year-old movie at a live theater just east of Washington Square in Lower Manhattan. That's an oddball pairing to be certain, but it does make a tiny bit of sense. Iyer was better known at the time as a live director than a movie director, and the movie's lead, Lindsay Duncan, for whom this was her first major movie role, had just seen some success on Broadway in Christopher Hampton's Les Liaisons Dangereux, which, which would be on movie screens a few months from this point in the timeline as Dangerous Liaisons in the role Glenn Close would play on screen. Anyway, Duncan here stars as Sally, a feminist who has built her own car from a kit and is looking for a companion to take on driving responsibilities to Munich, where she will be attending a women's conference. Stephen Ray, for whom this is his first major film role, is Harry, a drunken chauvinistic buffoon who wants to attend a Liverpool football club match in Munich, and misrepresents himself as gay in order to secure the ride. You can imagine where the film goes from there. It's a and it's a decent enough film, but it would disappear from the public theater after a very brief run, 
never to be seen in theaters again, and Orion Classics did not report any grosses for the film. Orion Classics would release their fourth Eric Romer movie, Boyfriends and Girlfriends, at the Lincoln Plaza Cinemas in New York City on July 15th, and at the Westside Pavilion Cinemas in Los Angeles on August 3rd. On the outskirts of Paris, a young clerk befriends a girl livelier than she is, who is going steady with a young man, who is friends with another young man, who is going steady with another girl, but is lusted for by the young clerk. Like Pauline at the Beach, Full Moon in Paris, and Summer, Boyfriends and Girlfriends would be somewhat of a triumph for Romer in the States, with critics and with audiences. The opening day ad in the New York Times pulled positive quotes from Peter Travers, who wasn't quite the quote whore he became, Vincent Canby, Andrew Saris, and Bruce Williamson. The film would never play in more than a dozen screens on any given week, but it would gross over $800,000 and play for seven months. July 29th would see the release of George A. Romero's Monkey Shines, an experiment in horror. Based on a novel by Michael Stewart, Jason Beggy stars as an athlete who becomes a paralyzed quadriplegic and is assigned a service monkey to assist him, who becomes a homicidal maniac after being injected with an experimental serum of human brain tissue. The $7 million movie would be Romero's first direct production involving a major distributor and would be his second highest budgeted film after Creepshow. Like most of his movies, Monkey Shines would be shot in his hometown of Pittsburgh and would be one of his most complicated film shoots. Due to working with live monkeys, he would shoot more footage than on any film before, and working with the live monkeys would cause more, more problems than Romero could have anticipated. Disability rights organizations had concerns about animal mistreatment allegations and would form a wheelchair picket line during the opening weekend of the movie at the Hollywood Pacific Theater. Orion needed a hit, and there were high hopes for the film, but this wouldn't be the one. The film would only open to 14th place with $1.9 million in ticket sales from 1,181 theaters. Bull Durham would have been out for nine weeks at this point and would still gross $1.8 million from only 905 theaters. Monkey Shines would quickly bounce to the lower half of double features and finish up with $5.34 million after 22 weeks. Another film that wouldn't be a big hit for Orion would be Stuart Rayfield's Mac and Me, which would open on August 12th. Perhaps film is too nice a label to put on it. An extended commercial for McDonald's is more accurate or more specific, specifically, an extended commercial for McDonald's that would hopefully ha help send some profits to the Ronald McDonald House charities. This $13 million E.T. ripoff features a young alien on Earth who befriends a young boy in a wheelchair as he tries to get back home. The film may or may not have been at least partially financed by McDonald's, but it was partially financed by Golden State Foods, a food service distributor with close ties to the fast food titan. And there's also massive promotions in the film for Coca-Cola and Sears. And as you can imagine with a film that is nothing more than 99 minutes of product placement after product placement, the film is a total stiff. And like Johnny B. Good a few months earlier, 
It would be a film that received received zero positive reviews. But unlike Johnny B. Good, audiences stayed away from Mac and Me in droves. Opening in 1,314 screens, the movie would gross slightly more than $2 million, good enough for 12th place. It would lose half that in its second week and lose most of its run by week three. But it would survive as drive-in and dollar house fodder for four more months and would finish with $6.4 million in the till. There's only two reasons to watch Mac and Me. One, an infamous McDonald's dance sequence, and two, the first on-screen appearance of one Jennifer Aniston. And luckily for you, both are at the same time. At the start of the dance sequence, there's a bunch of dancers in a parking lot and several people clapping along to the music as they sit on the curb. There's a dolly shot around the dancers where you can see Aniston sitting on a curb for a brief moment. But after that, keep watching the entire dance sequence. It's craven in its unscrupulousness. The following weekend, August 19th, Orion released their second of three consecutive Jonathan Demi movies, Married to the Mob. Michelle Pfeiffer plays a mobster's wife whose husband is murdered by his boss for sleeping with the capo's mistress, and then finds herself being pursued by the FBI when the capo puts the move on her at her husband's funeral. Dean Stockwell would be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor as the capo, and the $10 million movie would also feature Alec Baldwin, Joan Cusack, David, David Johansson, Matthew Modine, Oliver Platt, Mercedes Rule, Nancy Travis, Tracy Walter, and Trey Wilson. Even Grandpa Munster himself, Al, Al Lewis, shows up. How cool is that? The film did okay, not great, but not horrible. The film would open in 824 theaters and would gross $3.23 million in its first three days on its way to a $21.5 million gross after 19 weeks. Now, I love baseball. And one great movie about baseball in a year is great. Two great movies about baseball in a year is amazing. And two great movies about baseball from the same distributor in less than three months must have been due to something like the harmonic convergence. John Sayles's Eight Men Out would be released Labor Day weekend, September 2nd. The film tells a story about the circumstances that would lead to the infamous 1919 Black Sox scandal, when eight players for the Chicago White Sox may or may not have conspired to throw the World Series. The cast is chock full of some of the best actors working during the past 30 years. John Cusack, Michael Rooker, Charlie Sheen, David Strathair, and D.B. Sweeney were amongst the players. Michael Lerner, Christopher Lloyd, John Mahoney, and Kevin Tye also star, along with American historian Studs Terkel, and Sales himself as the journalist tracking the scandal. One of the amazing aspects of the movie is that even with this incredible cast and realistically shooting a period piece on location in Indianapolis, the film's budget would not exceed $6 million. The film would get really great reviews, although Siskel and Ebert would be split over the movie. Audiences would embrace the movie, at least at the start. Opening in 147 theaters, the movie would gross $1.13 million its opening weekend. But the following week, the film would lose nearly two-thirds its audience and would never really recover. 
The film would never play in more than 349 theaters, and after four months, the final gross would be just over $5.68 million. Woody Allen's eighth movie for Orion in six years, Another Woman, would open in Los Angeles and New York City on October 14th. Facing a midlife crisis, Jenna Rollins' philosophy professor Marion runs an apartment next to a psychiatrist's office to write a new book, only to become drawn to the plight of a pregnant woman seeking the doctor's help. As she listens in on the sessions from next door, she comes to realize that she needs to change her life for the better. And once again, Alan is channeling Ingmar Bergman, in this case, borrowing heavily from wild strawberries. And he assembles another fantastic cast. Philip Bosco, Betty Buckley, Francis Conroy, Blythe Danner, Sandy Dennis, Mia Farrow, Gene Hackman, John Hausman, Martha Plimpton, David Ogden Stiers, and Harris Eulin also star in the movie. The four-screen opening weekend was spectacular, $75,000 over three days, but it wouldn't last. The film would never expand past 24 theaters and would only gross a tad over $1.5 million after three months. October 21st would see the release of Tom Eberhardt's Without a Clue. It's another Sherlock Holmes movie, except it's a comedy where Holmes is a fictional creation of Dr. John Watson, a London doctor who uses the character to solve crimes without giving away his identity. But when the public demands to see Holmes in person, why Watson hires an out-of-work actor to play the role. Hilarity ensues as the fake Holmes has trouble trying to live up to Watson's exacting standards. Ben Kingsley plays Watson, Michael Caine, the actor playing Holmes, and Raiders of the Lost Ark star Paul Freeman as Professor Moriarty. The cast is rounded out by Lisette Anthony, Peter Cook, Nigel Davenport, and Jeffrey Jones. The original screenplay, called The Imposter of Baker Street, was written by two devoted Sherlockians and was filled with a number of references to Arthur Conan Doyle and his stories of Holmes and Watson, but many of those references would be cut by the time the film would go into production. Maybe the film would have been better as written, because the final version is not very good. The film would gross $1.25 million from 280 theaters its opening weekend, and would expand to 491 theaters by week 5, when it would gross $1.34 million. But it would be gone from theaters, with a little more than $8.5 million in ticket sales, by mid-December, when a better Orion comedy starring Michael Caine would open, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. Pedro Almodovar's Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown would open on both screens at the Cinema Studio in New York City on November 11th. Almodovar's seventh film would be the one that would make him a worldwide sensation. Carmen Mora stars as Peppa, a television actress who encounters a variety of eccentric characters after embarking on a journey to discover why her lover abruptly left her. It would also be the movie that would introduce Antonio Banderas to filmgoers. The movie would be nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars and Golden Globes, and it would win the Best Foreign Film Award from the National Board of Review and the New York Film Critics Circle, and would win five of the 16 Goya Awards, the Spanish version of the Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay. 
And while most of the movie's $7.2 million gross would come from the first six months of its run, which would be the highest grossing Spanish language movie released in America until Like Water for Chocolate hit theaters in 1993, the movie would play in at least one theater in New York City for more than two years. British director Alan Parker's 1960s Civil War drama Mississippi Burning arrived in limited release on December 9th. Two FBI agents, played by Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe, with wildly different work styles, arrive in Mississippi to investigate the disappearance of some civil rights activists. Based on the story of the 1964 murders of James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, Mississippi Burning is a tough movie to watch, unflinchingly examining race relations in America in a way that only a non-American like Parker can. It also flips the script on what you would expect from a film like this to do. You'd expect the older Hackman to be the -the by-the-book lawman and the younger Defoe to be the open-minded idealist ready to try anything to solve the case and get the perps. But that's one of the little touches that make the film so powerful. The film would be nominated for several Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor Gene Hackman, and Best Supporting Actress Frances McDormand, who really did deserve to win over Gina Davis. Opening in nine theaters its first weekend, Mississippi Burning grossed an outstanding $225,000. Its per-screen average of $25,000 would be nearly triple the next highest film. It would hold strong in those nine theaters throughout the Christmas season, before expanding to 551 theaters on January 13th, to 1,058 theaters on January 27th, and to its widest point of release with 1,134 screens on February 17th, two days after the Oscar nomination's announcement. The $15 million movie would only win one Oscar for cinematography, but when it ended its run in theaters in mid-June 1989, the film would have grossed $34.6 million. December 14th would see the release of Orion's final movie of the year, Frank Oz's Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Writer Dale Lorner, who had previously written the Danny DeVito Bette Midler movie Ruthless People and the Bruce Willis Kim Basinger movie Blind Date, had been asked by United Artists to write a movie for David Bowie and Mick Jagger to star in. The two musicians had just cut a single in a video for the Motown hit Dancing in the Streets, and they were hot again at the moment. Lohner had wanted to do a remake of the 1964 David Niven-Marlon Brando comedy Bedtime Story, but Universal Studios, the distributor of the original movie, was not willing to give up the rights. The following year, Paramount asked Lohner to come up with a movie for Eddie Murphy, and once again the writer suggested a remake of Bedtime Story. And once again, Universal declined to sell the remake rights. So the writer did some detective work and discovered Universal never disclosed that they actually no longer owned the rights to Bedtime Story. The rights had reverted back to one of the original screenwriters, so Launer was able to make a deal with the writer to redo the movie. Steve Martin plays a crass American con artist who comes to learn the art of the hustle in the south of France from Michael Caine's intelligent and sophisticated counterpart. The film would come together rather quickly. Production would begin on June 6, 1988, and would end on August 19th, six days ahead of schedule. The movie would be edited in just five weeks, 
And the first test screening took place in San Diego on October 1st. A second test screening happened two days later in San Francisco. Audiences would rate it 88 and 87% excellent or very good. The film would open in 1,466 theaters and come in fifth place with $3.8 million. The film would grow its audience during the holiday season and stay in the top 10 for six weeks. The film would continue to play throughout the winter, spring, and summer and would end its run with $42 million. And 1988 would be a good year for Orion Pictures, at least when it came to nominations. Eleven nominations between four films in most major categories. Best Picture, Best Director, three of the four acting categories, both writing categories, foreign language film, sound, editing, and two nominations for cinematography. But there'd only be that one single win, that cinematography award for Mississippi Burning. And that's going to wrap it up for this fourth part at our look back at Orion Pictures. Our next Orion episode will cover the movies of 1989 in depth and then go into some detail about their first half of the 1990s. Bill and Ted will have an excellent adventure. A Beastie Boy tries an acting career. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire! Weird Al Yankovic tries an acting career. Milos Forman makes his own dangerous liaisons. Roseanne Barr tries an acting career and against Meryl Streep for some reason. It's time to board Jim Jarmusch's mystery train. All that and much more. But before we get into that, our next episode will be a timely affair as we take a look back at a specific week in movie history. What was playing in theaters leading up to May 21st and May 23rd, 1980. It really is a microcosm of just how much the entire movie industry has changed over the decades. I hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help the podcast get higher rankings, which help the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The FilmJerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Oh, it's all